I am a school social worker and I work with uh, preschoolers at Pershing School and I also work at Robertson Charter School. I'm a senior software engineer at Ameren. I'm a volunteer. I volunteer at New Life Pregnancy. I do pregnancy consulting there. So if somebody thinks they might be pregnant, they come and see me. I'm a, I've been a licensed structural engineer for 42 years and uh, work at ADM. I'm a division manager over there. We've been attending First Christian, I believe, probably five or six years. I have been attending First Christian for seven years. And I've been attending First Christian Church for over 26 years. I love how there's so many different people here, different kinds of people, but that we're all connected to each other through Christ. The, the heart for missions uh, outside of these four walls, whether it's in the community or around the world, just um, the dedication to taking the gospel and going uh, instead of staying at uh, MacArthur Road. I think the, the thing that drew us to our, the church is just that we were struggling with our walk 26, 27 years ago, and my wife and I knew we needed a better place to be, and this church has become a family for us, and it served us very well. I've always believed that being involved in, in my church is very important, and when I look at my spiritual gifts, I believe I do bring something to the table as far as being an elder, so I'm, I'm very comfortable in that position. I had been praying about how to become more involved in the life of the church and, and then got the phone call that we, I was being considered. Uh, and so just was honored for the opportunity to be part of a prayer-focused sounding board for the direction of the church. So that's, you know, we jumped at the opportunity. I was asked to be an elder, and I read a book, and I thought about it, prayed about it for some time, and then I walked into the service that Saturday night. Everyone was standing up worshiping, and I thought to myself, you know, I could help shepherd this flock. So that was very meaningful. I felt like that was confirmation. I think the my heart and the overflow moment for me is just that the, the people in the congregation need to hear that the church is there for them, there are resources available, and this is a difficult time, this is where you need to be. Well, with this COVID situation, it's it's been very onerous, obviously, for everybody, and I just hope that uh, our, our congregation can hold together and uh, be faithful and obedient. The overflow of my heart would be more in terms of uh, helping build vibrant relationships with Christ uh, for the families and for themselves that will really carry them through difficult times and good times. My overflow for the church body is that I know that uh, when Christ was resurrected and he spent 40 days um, coming back to earth and showing himself, he would often show his wounds and his scars to the disciples. He wanted to say his mission was complete, that the cross was the goal that he had, and he um, fulfilled that mission. And I think that God wants us to take up our cross. He wants, in, in so doing, that we're going to have wounds and we're going to have scars. It can draw others to God through those hardships because they can see God's goodness in those times.
Well, it's good for us to be together here. And if you are newer here or online or in the East Auditorium, my name is Brian and uh, have the privilege of actually, you could say being the conduit of the message uh, from the people you just saw in this uh, video, our elders. And our elders, they serve as the, what that biblical word elder actually means overseer. They are the spiritual overseers of our congregation. And one of the things I love about um, that board of elders is the reality that they are a whole lot more like you than they are me in the sense that unlike us strange people who spend their days working at a church building, uh, they're in the real world, so to speak. You know, men and women, real world jobs, real world lives, just like the rest of you and like the weirdos like us. And so uh, as we stepped into this overflow series and with this understanding of what Jesus says that out of the overflow of our heart, our mouth speaks. Uh, we've had different pastoral voices giving the overflow of their heart for us as a congregation. And we thought, how cool would it be to get our, our spiritual overseers, get the overflow of their heart for us as a congregation. So uh, this is uh, my best attempt at collating and consolidating and, and really being a conduit of what I feel that like God has uh, communicated to them, through them, for us here today. And so before we get into all of what their conclusion was, uh, really the best way to start is where Scripture starts, as that's where they started as well in our conversation together. And so I'd invite you to turn to Revelation chapter 3, where we will be um, looking at uh, to kind of understand, again, the overflow of our elder's heart. And it's interesting, when you think about the book of Revelation, uh, there's a lot of maybe preconceived notions, even if like your like church is kind of new to you. When you think about the book of Revelation, uh, you know, you think about these kind of magnanimous prophetic visions of warnings and tribulations and wars and rumors of wars, angels and demons and battles and cats and dogs living together. And, you know, it's just living in mass hysteria. Uh, and, and all of that is in Revelation. Uh, some of it's a little bit quoted from Ghostbusters, the movie, but uh, most of it's in Revelation. Uh, but that's, that's kind of what we come to Revelation. It's kind of like, for a lot of us, it's a little scary. Uh, maybe um, for most of us, we find it confusing. Uh, but the irony is about Revelation is that it's not designed to bring confusion. In fact, the title itself literally means unveiling. That revelation is designed to reveal, namely, number one, who Jesus is, and then out of the overflow of that, what Jesus expects for his church. And then really specifically, the way in Revelation does that at the beginning of the, the book is through seven messages to seven specific churches that actually existed in the first century. And so as we look at that and these teachings of Jesus to those churches then, we recognize that Jesus' teachings are timeless, they're eternal, and they continue for us as a church as well. And so with that, that's where the message we're going to look at. Revelation chapter 3, uh, it's actually the seventh message to the seventh church, uh, the church at Laodicea. <clears throat> and it says it this way, starting in verse 14. It says, to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, these are the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. Meaning this is like, the amen is like the, the biblical mic drop. This is like the final word, the final authority, and it's Jesus, and Jesus says this to this church and thus potentially to us. I know your deeds, he says, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other, but so because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, 
I am about to spit you out of my mouth. And so we had an interesting question this past week that came out on social media, uh, kind of regards to hot and cold and lukewarm. And that was as to how people like their pizza. Uh, our communications person kind of extracted it out of the, our sermon and then just put it out there, which I thought was fun. And so to have a little fun here, uh, let's go ahead and do this. For those of you who are on the chat, go ahead and type in there your favorite pizza. We'll, kind of, we'll go broad. Like it could be toppings base. It could be, you know, style like Chicago deep dish, New York style, thin crust, whatever. So go ahead in the chat. And then for those of us in the room, so that we can join in the fun, just share with your neighbor, if they don't already know, favorite kind of pizza. It's kind of like the newlywed game. Share with your spouse. You should know this, but if you don't, go for it. On your market set, favorite kinds of pizza. Oh man, some passionate people out there. All right, jumping on the chat online. We've got Barb and Gary, sausage, mushroom, and onion. Okay, that's a winner. Uh, Pastor BJ, ham and green peppers on thin crust, fresh out of the oven. Like that detail. Uh, let's see. Okay, we've got Lynn and Dory Kazir from Africa. How cool is this? Very specific. Sausage and mushroom from Filippo's in Monticello. Yeah, okay. And then we've got Dory, Hawaiian, pineapple and ham for clarification, she says. Um, and then deep dish from Luminati. I'm not going to say this right. Someone's going to beat me. Luminati. I'm not from <laughs> Illinois. Can we start this sermon over? First, like, okay. All right. So with that, I'll ask this question. Okay, so how do you like your pizza? Um, this is almost rhetorical in nature. Do you like your pizza, like BJ, hot and fresh out of the oven? Right, show of hands in the room. Yeah, I think you can put like an emoji hand up online. Yeah, so I think 100% in the room, if I looked correctly, okay. How about uh, next morning, same pizza, breakfast cold? Yeah, okay, maybe 60% in the room. Okay, last one. Someone forgot to put it in the fridge. It's been left out overnight, and it looks more like a plastic toy that goes to your kid's plastic play kitchen than it does actual edible food, that lukewarm, crusty, nasty. Yeah, who, who's, who's in there for that? <laughs> okay. I okay, so what you can't see online is that our whole young adult ministry is sitting right here. <laughs> I've been that college student. I know what that pizza is, and you can survive on it, but it's definitely not the first choice, is it, folks? No. <laughs> All right, so yeah, pretty, pretty uh, obvious that that lukewarm, nasty, left-out pizza is not our number one choice. Well, that is exactly what Jesus is calling this church on. He is saying, essentially, you are neither hot nor cold. I wish you were one or the other, but because you've been left out, plastic, crusty, stale, Jesus says, these are the words of Jesus, he says, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. The message paraphrase says it this way. It says, you make me want to vomit. Now, what would entail such a strong rebuke, such a strong correction? What is lukewarm? What is Jesus getting at? Well, as I think about our church today, uh, the church by and large uh, in our country, uh, uh, the most recent Pew Research study uh, in a survey of uh, Americans uh, checked that 70.6% of Americans claim Christian as their religious affiliation. Now, checking Christian as a religious affiliation, to me, I would suspect based on 70.6% of our country, is that the same thing as saying hot, like all in devotion to Jesus? Or would some measure of that 
suspicion would be maybe not all in, maybe what we might call lukewarm. Because I think in my life, and you might be able to write, it's like I feel like I know some people who are like hot, you know, white hot, faith for God, you know, all in. I would say I even know some people who are ice cold toward the things of God. We might call them atheists, but I'm afraid that I hold, you could say a whole lot more, apathyists. Lukewarm, apathy, complacent would be some synonyms for that. And that's the accusation that Jesus has. And what's interesting is he's not accusing a country, a nation, a city. He's talking to a church. You know, he's talking to people in the pews, members of the ministry at Laodicea. And he's saying to them, arguably, those who are in the 70.6%, hey, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were one or the other. So because you're lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. And so why such a strong rebuke? Such a strong correction from Jesus. Well, Jesus goes on to fill in those blanks for this church. Verse 17, follow with me. He says, this church, he says, you say, I am rich. I have acquired wealth and I do not need a thing. I've heard it said this way, that wealth and resources, they aren't wrong, but they are risky. They can be dangerous. And for the church at Laodicea, the, the members of this particular church, they were a church in the city of Laodicea, you know, get a real place that's in current modern-day Western Turkey uh, in the first century, that this church, they were in a city that was prosperous. Uh, they were known for their textile industry. They were uh, a leader in the known world for banking and finance, as well as uh, medicine. They had like a leading medical school in that community. And so you could say that the community, the city, was firing on all thin cylinders. And that's, again, not necessarily bad, but for the people in the pews at the church of Laodicea, it turned out to be perilous because what that allowed them to do was to really give into the temptation of trusting in the physical, visible resources that they could touch rather than the invisible God of the universe who provided them in the first place. You see, anytime throughout the Bible, anytime where all the physical, visible needs are met by the people of God, there is always a warning to go with it. In fact, back in the beginning, toward the beginning of the Bible, uh, the uh, people of God, the Israelites, are enslaved in Egypt. They're freed. Uh, they get through the Red Sea, parted by God, and they're on the way to the promised land. We just sang about it, God's faithfulness in that story as it applies to us, so totally relevant to us today. And as they're on the way to the promised land, uh, God gives them this warning in Deuteronomy 6. You know, they're, he's saying, as you go into this place that I'm going to provide, that I promised you know, your ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, I'm going to give it to you. You guys, I know you're like kids on Christmas. You can't wait to get to this land of milk and honey. But hold on, before you open that gift for me, God says, after I provide for all your needs, Deuteronomy 6, verse 10, a land with large flourishing cities that you did not build, houses filled with all kinds of good things that you did not provide, wells that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive groves that you did not plant. And when you eat and you are satisfied... When you have all your physical, visible needs met, verse 12, God says, be careful. Be careful that you do not forget the Lord, the one who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. 
do not forget the God who provided your physical, visible needs. Because anytime, throughout the whole story of scripture, whether at the beginning of the Bible with the Israelites coming through the Red Sea of the Promised Land or the end of the Bible, the church of Laodicea that we're looking at here now, God warns when we have our physical, visible needs met and blessed by him, well, then it becomes very easy to forget that these otherwise visible blessings came from the invisible God of the universe. And if you're wondering, kind of like a timeout for us, like, is this us? Is this apply to us? Is this something that we should be worried about or aware of or concerned about? I'm gonna risk a generalization here, but I would say, if you're physically in this room or physically in the East Auditorium, or you have the technology to be able to, to participate in worship via the internet, and if after this service, you have no concern about the lunch that you will get, whether that's now pizza because of the power suggestion or something else, or tonight when you lay your head on your pillow, you have no concern whether or not there will be a roof above your head or not, then I would argue that we fit into this concern category of having our physical, visible needs met by the invisible God of the universe and that we should be paying attention. Because for Laodicea, up until this point, they hadn't been paying attention. They had missed the prior teaching of Jesus in Matthew 6 and the Sermon on the Mount where they had really, you could say, given in to the treasures of this earth. They have hedged their bets on the treasures of this earth that ultimately rust and moth destroy where thieves break in and steal, Jesus says, and have forsaken them for, or forsaken them instead of the eternal treasure that is in Christ alone. And so Jesus, he, he reteaches this to them. Verse 17, again, says, you say, I am rich. I have acquired wealth and I do not need a thing. And so he goes on, he's, he's calling them out. He's saying, but you do not realize that you actually are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. So they're naked in the sense that they, they're in sin and, they, and, and they're naked and they don't, they're not even ashamed. And they're blind, they don't even realize how bad it is. And they are poor because they are not uh, rich in the eternal riches of what God has provided and have forsaken them for the physical riches of this world. And so Jesus gives them counsel. He doesn't just leave them there. He goes on, verse 18. He says, so here's, here's what you need to do. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you can become rich so that you become rich in hope and faith and love these eternal things that last forever. And from there, get those, uh, that you could say that faith refined by the fire of trials and testing so that it does last forever. He goes on, he says, and white clothes to wear so that you can cover your shameful nakedness. And so that's forgiveness. And then we are granted in the white clothes. It's the righteousness that's granted to us from Christ on the cross in forgiveness for what he's done for us, not what we can do, if we receive it. If we receive, it says salve, or another word that would be like healing medicine to put on our eyes so that you can see. So that you can see and you can heal from where the church and where we as the church are lukewarm. And so Jesus will do this for us as a church because, verse 19, this is a key verse in the whole thing, those whom I love, Jesus says, I rebuke 
and discipline. Those whom I love, he loves his church, and thus he rebukes and disciplines. Because like a loving father who disciplines a child, he loves his church enough not to leave his church in what he knows is not best for them. Namely, trusting in these physical, visible things that will pass away rather than the eternal realities that he's provided them and beyond in eternal treasure. He doesn't want them to miss out on what they've exchanged this for. And so, because of God's love for us and wants the best for us, how do we as his children, as his church, how do we receive that? How do we receive Jesus' rebuke, accept the discipline, and make correction from there? And honestly, this is now where we come in. This is our part in the story. Verse 19, Jesus says, be earnest and repent. Be earnest and repent. Be quick, you could say, to repent. Now that word repent, that literally means to, uh, full repentance means to turn around. It's to do a 180, like an about face, meaning you were heading this direction. It actually literally means to change your mind, to change your mind. That that's the beginning of repentance, that when you change your mind based on the conviction, the understanding that Jesus reveals to whatever it is in your life that's lukewarm, you change your mind, which allows Jesus to come in and change your heart so that together you can change your direction. That's what repentance means. Uh, it's not a fancy $10 church where it's very practical in the sense that it is, I'm gonna change my mind, which allows me to bring Jesus in to change my heart, and then together we change our direction to the direction that Jesus is calling me to follow. Because you can't have following without repentance. In fact, that's John the Baptist in all the four gospels that tell the account of Jesus. It always starts with John the Baptist coming first saying, repent, and then Jesus comes after and says, follow me. Because if you don't repent or turn from your way, the world's way, well, then you're not in a position to be able to follow Jesus. You can't have one without the other. You have to change your mind so that Jesus can change your heart so that together you can change your direction. And that direction is what God has for you at his best. Okay. All right. So I realize as I'm like going on here, uh, you know, kind of, this is one of those like, proverbial wag the uh, Bible finger kind of sermon it feels like. And so as the saying goes, for every time you point your finger at someone, you know there's three fingers pointing back at you. And so as I examine my own life and the own areas where, where have I been lukewarm, not, uh, you know, kind of all in for what Jesus has. Um, it, for me, I would say it's in an area that came to my attention uh, with a couple of families that have been involved in my life. Uh, kind of cool, a year and a half ago, some family friends, they attended church for the first time. They actually started attending up and through the new year. Then once COVID hit, um, you know, they stopped. It kind of fell off both in person as well online. They haven't been back since. And then another family, kind of cool, actually uh, attended for the first time uh, three weeks ago online. And, um, and so that's good. And so at the same moment that I'm kind of, you know, kind of pulling a little bit of a uh, church later to see, hey, we're good. I think I'm doing some good things. I had this realization that, I guess you could put it this way, that as ironic as you might think, okay, man, how do you, how do you get up there and talk in front of people? How hard that must be? The irony is it's actually a whole lot easier to, this is just me confessing for you, it's a whole lot easier for me to preach about the good news of Jesus than it is to have a personal conversation with someone about the good news of Jesus. 
And so as quick as I am, you know, kind of this oscillating for kind of feeling good about, hey, they attended church with me, I also have to recognize um, and repent of the reality that I've had opportunities uh, in those conversations to share more. And I, I, I get it in the sense like, you know, it's like one of my first jobs, I feel like, is to convince these people, like as a preacher, I'm not a complete weirdo, which if you all know me, that's really hard. Uh, the chips are stacked against me a little bit. And, and, but I've let that become an excuse um, to kind of withhold really the good news of Jesus that I'm willing to preach on a pulpit, but not with a person in a conversation. And so the way this came to head was uh, we had a guy in our church a few weeks ago for a meeting uh, whom I admire for the way in which I've witnessed him be able to personally share his faith and people come to Christ and, uh, and all this. And he's sharing about how uh, this is going his life. And, and, and it's like in a group setting and he's going out to his car in the parking lot. And I, and I literally chase him down and I share with him what I'm sharing with you. Hey, I've got these families in my life. It's kind of cool, this, that, and the other. But if I'm honest, I, I haven't uh, had the courage uh, because of insecurity or fear or whatever to really trust that God is going to give me the words to provide. It says in First Peter, uh, you know, for a reason for the hope that I have when they ask. And he looks at me and he says, that's sin. He says, you're withholding the gospel from them is sin. Now, it's good that you're confessing this to me, but what you're confe- make no mistake, what you're confessing is sin. That's sin. And I gotta be honest, I don't know that in my entire journey of following Jesus, I've ever had anyone look me in the face. He was a short man. Look, <laughs> look me in the face and say, that's sin. And I confess before you, I know, you might say, oh, Brian, this, no, I know for me, I have withheld. The, and, and it's like, if they, yes, they've asked, and I, and I feel like I have withheld. that it is, it is sin. And it is something that I am changing my mind about, I'm repenting of, and in real time have conversations planned uh, to have those conversations. And so this is like, this is real life right now happening for me. And so I would ask you, what area in your life do you recognize that you have not fully trusted God? Uh, Because whatever that area is, whatever that thing is that you have not fully trusted God with is the area in which you are lukewarm. Show me where you have not fully trusted God and I will show you where you are lukewarm in your faith in God. You know, maybe for you, it's just like me. You're uh, struggling with your witness. Maybe where you work or where you go to school, it's like maybe people know you're a Christian. Maybe they know you're part of the 70.6% who would claim Christian as a religious affiliation, but you haven't, um, maybe you've compromised in your, your, your faith or your values or uh, what you know is right in that space because of the pressure of the, the environment. Uh, and you've compromised your integrity, or maybe you just haven't taken advantage of opportunities to have those conversations, and you need to pray for those opportunities and take God up on those opportunities and trust him like I need to trust him for First Peter 3.15, that where uh, there is an opportunity to share the hope that you have, that you'll be able to share that both in deed as well as in your words. You know, another area that I feel like I see this a lot is in the area of romantic relationships, Um, you know, uh, where it's like the sense like maybe things haven't gone the way that you had planned or the way you thought God was going to ordain it as far as a timeline. And so the timing doesn't work for you. And so you start forcing it and you take matters in your own hand and your taste, you're you're dating someone you know you shouldn't be dating or the nature of the relationship is going a direction you know it shouldn't be going. And you start to kind of write things off as old fashioned, like living together before marriage or pursuing 
pursue purity before marriage. Like, like, I don't know if that really applies. And, you, and, you, and the reality is you're saying is that you don't actually trust God for the way in which he designed it. And so you're going to be lukewarm. You're going to take matters into your own hands. And your faith in God and your relationship with this person as it relates to your relationship with God together is at best lukewarm. Or maybe you're like the church at Laodicea where, you know, they have put their functional trust in the physical resources of this world. They have hedged their bets uh, with what they can touch and see and feel rather than the reality that the invisible God of the universe is the one that provided it. And so for you, maybe it's like you, you believe that God has given you 100% of the resources that you have, but you haven't stepped into trusting him by returning to him a tenth of that and what you know, the scriptures call a tithe and then even seeking generosity beyond that because you're not sure you can really trust God with that area of your life. You know, what if the rainy day comes? What if that bill that I can't pay shows up? You know, how can I actually functionally function on that percentage less of my income on a monthly basis and know that I'm going to have everything I need and everything I want? You say that you trust God, but there is a functional gap in your faith in God and thus in your area of your resources, like Laodicea, you are lukewarm. Or maybe for you, it's just an area that just... um, hasn't gone your way, you know, that you um, maybe didn't get the job that you wanted or into the school you wanted or you thought you were in the job that you wanted, but you got laid off or there's a diagnosis in your life or someone else's life and uh, you had a plan. And if God has, it's almost like, okay, well, obviously God doesn't have a plan. If he has a plan, it's not a very good one. And so you take that area back in your life. Or maybe it's the area of forgiveness. You know, you say, you know, I know I need to forgive. I know that God says to do this. And, uh, but if I, don't, if I forgive this person, then they might not know how much that they hurt me. And so I got to hold on to this bitterness because I'm just not sure God can fill the debt that this debtor, as we pray, has um, incurred against me in my life. Or here's one for real time. Uh, and it would seem in the last 24 hours that we have a much clearer understanding of the results of our otherwise unclear election. And there's some of you who are happy about the result, and there are some of you who are unhappy about the result. But let me remind you of a message that we said three weeks ago that matters just as much before the election, that's going to matter just as much after. Is your identity, is your faith, is it in a physical, visible representation of a Republican elephant, a Democratic donkey, or in the slain lamb, Jesus Christ, who Revelation 5.12, worthy only is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise Show me an area where you have not fully trusted God and I will show you where you are lukewarm. Which really brings me to the overflow of our elders for you all as the congregation that they are spiritually overseeing. As I was trying to discern, okay, where were all their, with everything that they had to say on our behalf, if I had to boil it down, honestly, I feel like in their own confession, their own testimony, their own sharing, that in their journey, they recognized where they maybe had a 70.6% lukewarm faith, a nominal faith at best, and had this moment either in their entire life or in a huge area of their life where they, they gave it all to Jesus, they surrendered it, and they were all in, and I get this impression, this sense, this reality that the overflow, this burden that they have for you is that you too, every member of our ministry, every person 
person in the pew or at home or wherever you are would experience the same. That you would actually experience the mission of the church of which they are responsible for overseeing taking place in our lives. That we would actually, as First Christian Church, discover and experience what it really means to be a devoted follower of Jesus Christ as we grow together and as we serve together. That's the overflow of the elders for our church. And so, how do we receive that? How do we step into that? Okay, uh, I hear the overflow of the elders' hearts. Why is my life gonna look different as a result of the last hour together versus the hours I have ahead? And here it is. This is what Jesus says we need to do. He doesn't leave the church at Laodicea hanging. He doesn't leave us hanging. Verse 20, follow with me. Jesus says, and so with all of this, here I am. He says, I stand at the door and knock. And if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. It's a, it's a very popular verse, actually, one that is often used uh, evangelistically in an understanding like, hey, if you don't know a relationship with the Lord, Jesus stands at the door of your heart and he knocks and you can let him in, which is absolutely true, but it's actually not the context of this passage. Remember, this is a letter written to a church. And so Jesus isn't knocking on the door of the unbeliever's heart in this passage. He's knocking on the door of his own church. He's knocking on our hearts. And trust me, I think that, don't trust me, trust Jesus. I don't think that's the side of the door that we want to leave Jesus on as his church. And so he stands at the door and he knocks and it's up to us to hear his voice, to change our mind, to open the door, to allow him in, to do what he does, change our hearts, so that together we can change our direction. Open the door in repentance as you change your mind, change your heart, and change your direction. And so the way we get to do that is through this gift, not this obligation, but this gift of prayer. Prayer, um, it, it's, it's the gift that God gives us to touch base with the Holy Spirit to do this in our lives. In fact, one of the things that we have leaned into and our spiritual overseers has made sure that we're always paying attention to is that we say we're a praying church. And the reality is we can't be a praying church unless we're a church that actually prays. So to ensure we're the praying church we claim to be, we are always paying attention to how can we make sure we're actually functionally praying. And so throughout this overflow series, we have embedded within it opportunities to pray together. Uh, week one, we, you might remember if you're with us, we prayed on the front lawn of the church for our country and the church or the front lawns of our homes. Uh, week two, we prayed in various areas all over our community as well as on Zoom. And then this past week, Pastor Thomas led us in a, in a rich understanding of the community reality of what the practice of communion is. And so this week, in like manner, we are gonna continue to pray that we're not gonna turn ourselves around, but that we're gonna change our mind, make that commitment, and then from there, if you choose to open the door to let Jesus in, he will change our hearts in a prayer of repentance and confession so that we can change our direction in whatever area of our life that we have not fully trusted Jesus with. And so to do that, I'm gonna invite you to um, kind of 
it's called a posture prayer, where we kind of get more than just bowing our heads, closing our eyes, and really engage ourselves uh, into committing to this prayer that even though it's me talking, we're going to do this together. And so whether you're at home or the East Auditorium or in this room, I'm going to invite everyone to kind of play along here and hold up your hands and make a fist, some tight fists, because this is where we start. This is our natural inclination to hold on, to be in control, to make it happen. And we need to start there and confess whatever that area is that we are trusting in ourselves or this world rather than the Lord. And so let me lead us as we pray. Heavenly Father, this is our confession to you. I pray that you would reveal right now, draw to mind by the power of your Holy Spirit. Maybe it's something that we already know just from listening to your word over the last few moments. Maybe it's something new you wanna reveal. But what is that area that we have not fully trusted you, that we have remained lukewarm, that we are holding on to in our own strength? Lord, would you reveal that to each of us now? Now, Father, with that, whatever it is, we now open our hands. We open our hands so that we can let go, we can surrender, we can release. And with that, not leave open empty-handed, but we now, with our open hands, accept and receive what you have for us is you come in and you eat with us and us with you. Whatever your best is for us in this area, we wanna receive it, we wanna know it, we wanna trust in it, we wanna live in it, because we do know, we really do believe you have what's best for us. But we can't step into that for whatever reason our own, that's the way you designed it perfectly. We can only do it by the power of your Holy Spirit at work within us. And so we receive that word, that correction, that new direction for each of us. It's in Jesus' name that we thank you. Amen. I'm going to invite you to stand with me here in the west and the east. And actually, we're going to maintain this physical posture. Um, don't get worried. I'm not going to make you do this. We're not going to go all charismatic on you. We're just going to keep it here. Uh, keep it safe. Baby steps. As we... I love this verse. I love the way this, this passage ends uh, in, in Revelation uh, chapter. This is irony that the way we win as followers of Jesus, ironically, is when we choose to lose. That the way in which we achieve victory is when we wave the white flag, when we surrender. He says it this way in the last verse of this passage to the church. He says, to the one who is victorious... I will give you the right to sit with me on my throne. This is Jesus. Just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on the throne. Victory is achieved in surrender. And so in a posture of surrender with our hands out, as well as victory, this is our victory cry, our letting go. We're going to close out our time together with a prayerful worship expression of the victory that is Jesus's but is also ours. And so let's sing that to him together in all our locations.
you are victorious. the bad. 